0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information on Shiloh Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at shilohopc.org. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. My slides just worked. Now they're not working again. So I don't know what the problems are up here. All right. Um, So I'm once again filling in for Matthew here. Matthew and I are very excited to be teaching this class. When Matthew and Christine moved here the first time, whenever that was, four years ago or something, we had um, Matthew and Christine over to our house. Um, and the two of us quickly figured we had this common interest in Presbyterian history. And th- our entire friendship is, is built around this. It's all, all we ever actually talk about. Um, I barely know anything about Matthew besides uh, this common interest that we have. Um. <clears throat> so, uh, let me try one other thing, because I have a couple slides I'd, lo- I'd really like to show. It seemed to work on my iPad last time. so. But, uh, Ma- so we're picking up now, again, where um, Matthew was supposed to be last week. um and as much as I love Presbyterian history, this is the one class I, I really wanted Matthew to teach. Um, we're going to talk about uh, the Civil War and slavery, debates over slavery, um, and I really wanted Matthew to teach this one, but here I am. Um, all right, the iPad seems to work, so I'll do my notes on my phone. Sorry about this. <coughs> now it doesn't work, apparently. There it is. All right, I got to get ahead to where we are. We're just using one giant slide deck here. so um, Now everyone's refreshed on everything we've talked about. You've seen all these slides. Oh, that was the last time. All right, so um, uh, I'm going to recap a little bit of what Matthew already talked about. Um, leading up into the, the new school, old school division in 1838. Um, this graph shows the membership of the, the mainline Presbyterian Church, the PCUSA, from 1800 up to 1838. Um, so you can see in 1800, there are about 20,000 uh, members. I think these are supposed to be communicant members of the church. So that is smaller than the OPC today. The OPC is about 30,000 people. Um, so relatively small group. Yes, sir. The population of America was quite a bit smaller, yes. Um, But you see, up until the old school, new school controversy starts, it gets up to about a quarter million people. I think the PCUSA and membership peaked in the 1960s at around 3 million people. It sounds like 2 million people or something now, but just to give you some context. So a quarter million people. There's somewhat of an exodus during the old school, new school controversy that I don't totally uh, know the reasons for. But this is also the era as the Baptist church is really starting to explode on the scene. Not a a denomination per se, but independent churches. And also getting into the era when the the Methodist church really starts to explode as well. Um, So in 1801, there had been a a plan of union between the PCUSA and Congregationalists in, in New England to work together to plant churches on the frontier as the nation expands towards the west. Um, you see in 1803, the, the Louisiana Purchase happens, um, and the United States territory expands significantly towards the west. So after the Revolutionary War, people start pushing to the frontier, which at the time, you know, you were talking Tennessee, western Pennsylvania, Ohio, um, Kentucky, and then that really starts to open up uh, further and further west. In the 1840s brings the rest of the contiguous United States uh, after war with Mexico, and then the... the um, Pacific Northwest are acquired. Um, And the church is also growing rapidly uh, at this time. It's the the age of the the second great awakening, Charles Finney, we we talked about that. In 1930s, the fight um, begins over Albert Barnes, who again, Matthew has talked about a little bit. Um, That's Albert Barnes and his church in Philadelphia. um, First church in in center city of Philadelphia. Um, The emerging old school party believes that Barnes is basically soft-pedaling Calvinism, um, changing some of the, or, or stepping away from the teaching of the, the uh, confession about whether or not uh, all people are responsible for Adam's first sin, as we, um, you know, my, my children are learning in the, the younger catechism. Barnes was, was teaching contrary to that. He also thought it was unjust for God to give us a law um, that we were incapable of keeping. So he, he kind of was arguing that we were able to keep the law uh, on our own. Um, Barnes is acquitted of heresy uh, by the General Assembly in 19, uh, 1836. And then um, through that, the controversy kind of expands as the old school party, uh, which was you know, not an actual group at the time, just uh, concerned ministers start to really apply their scrutiny towards other ministers. Um, there's so much controversy that Charles Finney, who had become a Congregationalist at this point, says that there's jubilee in hell every time the General Assembly meets because uh, it's such a, a wretched thing in, in his eyes. Um, so in, in 1837, the old school party has a, a dominant uh, attendance at General Assembly, and they end the plan of union, um, which was this relationship with Congregationalists, and they also remove four synods uh, from the the denomination. So synods are groups of presbyteries. so this is a lot of people, 60,000 members, 500 ministers, these synods were formed as part of the plan of union, so they were kind of half Presbyterian, half Congregationalist, and they kicked them out of the denomination, uh, which doesn't go over well to those who are sympathetic with the new school. So then at the next assembly, 1838 in Philadelphia, um, the old schoolers arrive first. They, they take their seats in the front. They, they close the doors in the front of the church so that the new schoolers have to sit in the back. Um, new schoolers start to arrive, fill up the back, including some of the men Who's, who had been uh, removed from the denomination the year prior. Um, as they seat uh, attendees, so those who are allowed to vote in the assembly, um, some of the ones who had been removed from the denomination try to uh, say that they're voting members of the assembly. And the, the old school moderator of the assembly sh- shouts to one of the men, "'Sir, we do not know you. "'You're not, you're not part of this assembly.'" that breaks out into this chaos in the meeting um which ultimately leads the new schoolers starting their own general assembly meeting in the back of the church uh where they've been sitting uh so very chaotic event that happened there they they eventually leave the building and go um to another place and start um start a separate denomination ultimately um george marsden who's a church historian uh also notable, he grew up in the OPC. His parents were OPC missionaries. Um, he gives six reasons why this division occurred between the new and the old school. Um, one, the meaning of confessionalism. Two, Presbyterian polity. Three, the relation of the church and voluntary societies on the, quote, evangelical united front. So how were churches working along with um, these basically parachurch organizations? There were a lot of them forming at this time for uh, printing Bibles, for evangelism, for church planning, a lot of parachurch things. Uh, four, the methods of revivalism. Five, theology itself, and, and um, there were concerns over the New Haven theology, which we talked about. And six was over slavery. And it wasn't that there was a clear distinction between the old and the, old and the new school as how the two looked at slavery, but they were, there were parties in each that, that took sides. Okay, so this era, early... early uh, 20th century, you know, the church is growing, the nation is growing. This is an era of immigration. Um, it's when you first start to get a lot of Catholics uh, coming, I guess a little bit later, 1840s, I think. The Irish potato famine, maybe 1850s. Uh, you start to get a lot of Irish Catholics coming to the United States. The nation is growing by leaps and bounds through immigration. It's an era of, of seminaries, as Matthew talked about, um, from 1810 or 12, maybe. Princeton's formed, um, Union seminary which is now in Richmond is formed, Auburn in New York, 1818, Uh, Pittsburgh, uh, what's now Pittsburgh Seminary, Western Seminary originally, Columbia Seminary in South Carolina, uh, a prominent um, old school southern seminary, Uh, 1829 Lane Seminary in Cincinnati, really a frontier seminary that would become a a haven of abolitionism, Um, Lyman Beecher was the president there, he's the uh, father of Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, prominent abolitionist. Uh, Hanover Seminary is formed in Indiana, uh, also way out on the frontier. It's now McCormick Seminary in Chicago. Danville Seminary is formed in, uh, in, uh, well, in Danville, Kentucky, and it's now Louisville Seminary, which still exists in, in Louisville, Kentucky. Danville was my, my great grandfather's uh, alma mater for seminary about 100 years ago. Not a seminary, but here in Raleigh, you also uh, on the brink of the war, um, you start to have Peace College, which is just probably a mile and a half south of us here. It was a women's college that was started by Presbyterians. They, they tried to start it before the war, and it didn't really get off the ground, so after the war, it, it came to be. This is an era of of missions, um, domestic and foreign, both denominational and independent. As I talked about, there are these uh, a lot of parachurch organizations that are seeking to both do home missions as the the nation moves west. Um, there's huge efforts to plant churches and spread the gospel on the frontier, um, as well as you start to have denominational missionaries um, from the from the PCUSA and others. I believe it's in the 1830s. The first missionaries are sent from the PCUSA, uh, some to Liberia, uh, which was a nation formed on the coast of Africa that was um, many hoped could be a place where uh, slaves could return to Africa and um, established a nation there. There's a lot of support for that within uh, in the denomination. And, and there was a desire as that was being formed for, the, for that to be a Christian nation where the gospel is proclaimed. Um, and I, I think there was a missionary also sent to um, then India, but what is now in Pakistan. Um, 1859, uh, Ashebel, um Simpton goes to Brazil and uh, helps establish the first Presbyterian church in Brazil in 1862 and then a Presbytery in 1865. Um, Brazil now has an enormous number of Presbyterians, probably, uh, I didn't look that up, but probably more Presbyterians than we have in the United States. Se- several denominations, uh, a, a variety of Matthew saying yes, but a lot of Presbyterians in Brazil uh, today. That, that started in that era. Um, sorry, I just jumped on my notes. Seven million members, Matthew says, in the Presbyterian Church of Brazil, um, which we, it, it is conservative. It's it's uh, it's not the OPC, but a you know conservative leading uh, denomination. Um, in 1840s, a missionary goes to China uh, for health reasons. He leaves China, um, but he ends up planting the first Chinese Presbyterian Church in, in San Francisco. In um, it's the first Chinese Presbyterian Church in the country, but it's in San Francisco in 1852. If you know also. I mean, missions to Asia are, are a huge thing. Uh, China, Korea, Japan, by Presbyterians, and a lot of Presbyterians in those nations as well. Um, in Texas, uh, the um, missionaries start to expand down into Mexico uh, and seek to minister uh, to the Mexican people. The, the, the mainline Presbyterian church in Mexico, which I think is also a fairly conservative church, is now 3 million members. So again, bigger than the PCOSA, more than all the Presbyterians of all stripes in the, in the United States combined. Uh, there's also an, an ARP Church of Mexico, which is, is about 30,000 people, a similar size to the OPC, um, that was started by ARP missionaries in, in Mexico. So this is the age of, of missions, and this is not just Presbyterians, but uh, after the Revolutionary War, it's a huge explosion uh, of mission work. Okay, so at 1837, we have... Uh, um, or 38, we have two mainline denominations: the the New School, uh, which was basically kicked out of the the General Assembly and started their own church. They called themselves the Constitutional Assembly of the Presbyterian Church. And then you have the Old School, which calls itself the Reforming Assembly. And those names are kind of interesting, when the Old School kind of saw itself as being probably more of not reforming, but kind of the the continuing church. Um, but Those are the names they they pick for themselves. So the new school and old school are, um, you know, names that are applied, but that isn't what they called themselves formally. Um, So let's talk a little bit about the new school. So this is the more moderate group, uh, you know, less strict on confessional uh, subscription. Um, On the whole, probably more of an abolitionist group, although there was a lot of diversity within both groups. Um, The new school was more in the north than in the south. Um, historians have noted as they they look at this, um, you know so we're we 're talking about um, several hundred thousand people in total, thousands of ministers i, I don 't know exactly the number of ministers, but a lot of ministers. Um, historians have noted that we we 've identified these two parties, but probably most of the people were right in the middle, and probably the, the moderate new schoolers and the moderate old schoolers were not. Really, all that different. The the ministers, the people in the pew, as well. They were um, largely um, in the middle, which is is a helpful thing to remember. As churches can get polarized over controversy, Um, there's probably often a lot more unity than you see, uh, even within the polarization. If you if you follow, um, there's a lot of tension right now within the PCA, uh, and there are people saying a lot of things about both sides. But probably, if you met an average PCA pastor, um, an average p c a church member they're probably somewhere right in the middle, so just just helpful to think about. yes, sir yes yeah. And then of in I think. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. So Pastor Hughes uh, said that the new school was more favorable to Charles Finney, which is going to be contradicted by my next bullet point. But... um <coughs> Also, Charles, Charles Hodge, who was uh, young as, when the split happened, but becomes a very prominent old schooler, uh, teaches at Princeton Seminary. Um, he opposed the division, but then he also opposed the reunion, which we'll talk about more in a minute. But, so the, the new school was more favorable um, to Finney, but there actually ended up being uh, quite a bit of criticism of Finney that came out of the new school as well. So it wasn't that they were just uh, you know, totally open to these new measures and Finney's... Um, Rejection of Calvinism, essentially Pelagianism, um, Finney's manipulative, emotional, uh, revivalistic techniques. Um, so the New School was—it was a—it's was a, a complicated uh, thing. So, both—both you know, both more open, but also critical. Um, the, the New Schoolers, some of them also criticized the American Tract Society, which is one of these parachurch organizations that was uh, publishing Christian materials because they are re- printing the Puritan John Flavel, and they were watering down uh, Flavel's clear Calvinistic uh, theology as they edited some of the works. The new school takes the old school assembly to court, to civil court in Pennsylvania, um, and they actually end up being declared the rightful heir of the denomination. Lyman Beecher, who I mentioned, mentioned Harriet Beecher Stowe's father, was a prominent new schooler. Um, He believed that the the revivals of the 1800s, Second Great Awakening, seemed to indicate the purpose of God to give a prominent place to this nation and the glorious work in renovating the earth. Um, um, so the, the revivals were the God showing his favor to the United States. So a lot of um, talk these days about Christian nationalism and Christians and others cr- trying to criticize Christian nationalism. Well, if you go back to this era, every single person would be, have something that you could call Christian nationalism. So it's interesting that uh, it's come under such attack today. Um, Lyman Beecher, as, as with many others, um, was very concerned for the moral state of the nation. Uh, the, he and others advocated for Sabbath keeping, for temperance from alcohol, and, and for abolition. He, as I mentioned, he becomes a very prominent abolition, abolitionist figure. Um, the new schoolers were very concerned about the use of alcohol, I think, this era you get more industrialization and, and more mass production of alcohol and there's a lot of drunkenness um, in, in the 1830s new schoolers start to advocate for use of grape juice instead of alcohol in communion and they actually mandate that in 1840 uh, the use of um, of grape juice and they require total abstinence within the church not just in, in communion but elsewhere um, and abolition or sorry temperance is going to be a, a prominent theme in Presbyterianism even uh, through the, the early 1900s, Albert Barnes, this guy who had been tried and kind of started this this whole thing, he's a prominent New Schooler as well, and and with these others advocating for uh, temperance and abolition and and so other social reform. Um, th- there's also it's kind of a rabbit trail, but s- some have noted how the the New Schoolers, as they separated from the Old Schoolers, really ended up more identifying themselves as Presbyterians than they had before. And they, again, it's this complicated thing that they're um, kind of looser on some things, but they, as a separate group, they start to become more um, self-identified as Presbyterians. So complicated, complicated uh, groups on both sides. From the beginning, the New School has uh, tensions over abolition and how to handle slavery. And we'll see that's going to result in them splitting in the, in the 1850s. Talk about the, the old school for just a minute. Um, after the split, young Charles Hodge writes a, a very a lengthy history of the Presbyterian Church called a constitutional history of the Presbyterian Church. Um, that is a history, but basically arguing that the old school is right because they have history on their side. Um, the, the old schoolers, he said, were in favor of a stricter adherence to the standards of the church as the doctrine and order than the other, than the new school. And he he argues that that's that's the historical position of Presbyterianism. Hodge teaches at Princeton Seminary from 1822 uh, to 1878, a very long time. And in that era, he teaches more Presbyterian students than any other uh, seminary professor uh, of the 19th century. But again, the the old schoolers weren't of one mind either. Um, Hodge has extensive debates with James Henley Thornwell, who's a Southern Presbyterian, um, over the role of ruling elders, and then this kind of nuanced topic of boards versus commissions. So uh, ruling elders, Hodge has uh, what the OPC has actually come to adopt, um, more of what's called a three office view. So you have three offices within the church, ministers, ruling elders, and, and deacons. And he draws this distinction between what ruling elders are and what, um, what ministers are. Um, and he, to some degree, he downplays ruling elders more than we do in the OPC. Um, Thornwell, Argued essentially that uh, ministers and ruling elders are one office who have slightly different functions, in that ministers can administer the sacraments, um, but otherwise, um, ministers and elders are, are basically the same thing. So, in the PCA, for example, they have often what people call two and a half view, two and a half office view, where there's kind of a somewhat of a distinction, but not a full distinction between. Uh, ministers and ruling elders. But in the PCA, you have the terminology of a teaching elder more more commonly used for a minister and a ruling elder used uh, for a ruling elder because they see them as more closely aligned. Um, So the the OPC kind of goes with Hodge on that. There's also this debate that they have over church polity uh, where Thornwell insists that the Bible is more clear about what Presbyterian polity looks like, whereas Hodge actually ends up being, even though he's very conservative, ends up being somewhat more pragmatic And Hodge defends the use of what are called boards for things like foreign missions, um, home missions, that kind of thing, where you have these um, uh, administrative boards that are not directly under the authority of the General Assembly, and they might even have non-ordained members of the board. So you might have a a rich donor as a member of your board of foreign missions because he's given money to that board. Uh, Thornwell argues that no... uh, Scripture requires all of the church to be accountable to the, the General Assembly, ultimately. Um, and so he favors and says the, the Bible insists that we have these commissions uh, that are uh, parts of uh, um, the General Assembly and directly accountable to the General Assembly, which is what we have in the OPC. So the, the OPC kind of goes with Hodge on ruling orders and Thornwell uh, on boards, where we have... Um, foreign missions, home missions, um uh Christian education committees of the OPC and these are commissions so they're the members are members of the uh assembly and they're directly accountable to it. Denise. <laughs> yeah, where is that coming from scripture? Um <laughs> I I don't I'm not really prepared to answer that question and I think that's uh they wrote a lot about this, and um, I, I've i not really delved into kind of the nuances of how uh, Thornwell argues that. But I think that's a good question, and if I remember, I'll try to look into it before next week. Um, okay, we'll see if we can uh, get through all the splits and the Civil War in the next 15 minutes. Um, <coughs> Presbyterians had debated slavery from the beginning. Samuel Davies, you remember, back from the 1700s, um, didn't argue for abolition, but he argued for instructing slaves in the faith, and he was very committed to that. John Witherspoon, prominent in the American Revolution, a Presbyterian, um, president of, of Princeton University, said it is certainly unlawful to make inroads upon other, provoked and take away their liberty by no better power by no better right than superior power. So he says it's, it's not right to just be stronger. You can go to Africa and you can just take slaves. So, um, so th- just a little taste of this argument that goes back even to the 1700s. After the revolution, most in America and most in the Presbyterian church favored, at least in theory, a gradual emancipation of slaves. So they thought slavery was um, not a Republican thing to have, not part of our American freedom, but they didn't want just immediate abolition. They, they wanted some kind of Uh, gradual emancipation. In the 1818 General Assembly of the the church, this is before the old school, new school split, says, we consider the voluntary enslaving of one part of the human race by another as a gross violation of the most precious and sacred rights of human nature. And I'm going to not read the whole quote. It's kind of of lengthy, but um, it's a a violation of the rights of human nature, uh, a violation, they'll say, of the laws of God to have Slaves, and yet they aren't arguing for immediate abolition. They're kind of having this, I I think, often an ill-defined desire for gradual emancipation. Um, At the same time, 1818, you have a minister in Virginia named George Bourne. He writes a book uh, called The Book and Slavery Irreconcilable. So the book is the Bible. Um, He goes around really uh, bashing slave owners, saying people are... Unchristian for having slaves, um, saying that slaveholding and church membership are incompatible. Because of the way he's handling this, he's charged by his presbytery um, for, uh, quote, warranted and un-Christian claim, unwarranted and unchristian claims uh, for how he's bringing about his abolitionist uh, views. Uh, his, his presbytery removes him from the ministry. He appeals it to the General Assembly. The um, General Assembly in 1818 says the presbytery needs to retry him. They try him again, and he's removed from the ministry again. Uh, and he's seen as kind of a martyr of abolitionism, for, for better or worse. As Matthew noted in 1831, Nat Turner's rebellion happens. Nat Turner's a preacher and a slave. Uh, they kill 50 or 60 white people during this rebellion, and that really starts to polarize the movement a lot. You have ab- abolitionists more entrenched in their views, and those who are, um, think the Bible's okay with slavery more entrenched in their views. Um, You have uh, Robert Louis Dabney, James Henley Thornwell, two prominent Southerners um, who become staunch defenders of slavery and even at times say that they think the Bible makes it clear that slavery is a good thing. Um, Dabney at 20 years old, after the Nat Turner Rebellion, says their unauthorized attempts to strike off the fetter of our slaves has but riveted them on faster. Um, Thornwell... Uh, this is uh, in the 1850s. The scriptures not only fail to condemn slavery, they distinctly sanction it as I- any other social condition of man. The church was formally organized in the family of a slaveholder. The relation was divinely regulated among the chosen people of God and the peculiar duties of parties are inculcated under the Christian economy, these facts which cannot be denied. Thornwell will later say, uh, the golden rule, do unto others that you have them do unto you, Uh, only applies to slaves insofar that we only have to do to slaves what we would have people do to us if we were slaves, which I think is is dubious logic from Scripture. Um, Dabney, after the war, Thornwell doesn't survive the war, but Dabney, after the war, uh, will go on to write a defense of Virginia in the South where he he defends um, chattel slavery, that uh, it's okay for us to own people as property. And he he says things like, um, for the African race... Such as providence has made it, and where he has placed it in America, slavery was the righteous, the best, and yea, the only tolerable relation. Um, and he'll also, after the war, there's a big debate. Okay, now slaves are free. Can we have black ministers, black ruling elders? And, and Dabney argues vehemently against that. Uh, having, having, at least having, not having black ministers, but having black ministers over uh, white congregations. Um, and yet, Dabney, again, is a complicated figure. He, he writes, in other places, theology that continues to be regarded as very rich uh, biblical theology um, that doesn't appear to be um, ruined by his, his racist views. Uh, he, he has a little booklet on, um, on the penal substitution of Christ that's considered one of the you know, finest works on that. He wrote a systematic theology uh, that, that people continue to regard uh, well. So it's a complicated figure. Um, in uh, sixty-three, so uh, at age sixty-three, so that'll be uh, eighteen eighty-three. We're skipping way ahead of the war. Um, Dabney goes out to the frontier and becomes a professor of philosophy at um, the brand new University of Texas in Austin. And a couple years ago, I went to a conference in the convention center at the University of Texas Austin, and I walked into my um, hotel room. There's a hotel room on campus. And this, this portrait is above my bed. And there's Robert Louis Stabney looking down at my bed. I think it's probably the only hotel room in the, in the world where you can have Robert Louis Stabney looking over your bed. And uh, I don't know if he's been removed since then, but um, that was a really surprise to me. Um, okay, at the same time, you have ministers showing great care for the slaves the situation of the slaves. Um, John Gerardo, another prominent Southern Presbyterian, 1854 becomes the pastor of Zion Presbyterian Church in Charleston, South Carolina. There's now a hotel in that site. Um, This is what it used to look like. It was destroyed in 1959, I think. Uh, It was a church that was 30 people, mostly black people. It grows uh, over the next few years before the war to 1,500 people, predominantly black congregation. Gerardo is white. Gerardo is obviously not a Scots-Irish name. That's a he's a Huguenot Huguenot name. Uh, After the war, Gerardo is one of the first to ordain free black uh, elders. James Lyon in Mississippi, which we don't think of as a place, you know, in antebellum America, to be a place that was particularly kind to slaves. James Lyon is a minister. Uh, He works to end mistreatment of the slaves. He brings proposals to his presbytery uh, to advocate for blacks and whites worshiping together, uh, to punish those who mistreat their slaves. And, to, and he worked to establish catechism classes for slaves. But again, an, another complicated part of the story. A few years ago, Matthew and I uh, drove up to Virginia, just a couple hours north of here, to visit some historic um, church buildings. This church building, along with many others, or several others anyway, was designed by Robert Louis Dabney. He had a, a side thing of designing churches. I think it's an extraordinary, b- beautiful church building. Um, Briery Presbyterian out in the country, uh, south of hampton Sydney College, um, but from the mid-1700s until the Civil War, this church out in the country didn't have much money. It paid for its minister and its upkeep by owning slaves, which it rented out uh, to collect revenue to pay their, their pastor's salary. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated history with, with a lot of sad things on, on, on all sides. Um, <clears throat> In general, the the, um, old school championed um, what was called, uh, is called the doctrine of the spirituality of the church. And uh, in many ways, this allowed the old schoolers to have different views about slavery that they didn't necessarily bring into the church courts. Um, So the spirituality of the church church is this view that the church is spiritual and needs to let the, the civil and political affairs, affairs of the country govern themselves and that the church isn't to have a say into how those are done. Um, J. Gresham Machen also holds this view, one of the founders of the OPC. Um, he'll write much later talking about this doctrine. You cannot expect from a true Christian church an official pronouncement upon the political and social questions of the day, and you cannot expect cooperating with the state in anything involving the use of force. Important are the functions of the police and members of the church, either individually or in such special associations as they may choose to form, uh, should aid the police in every lawful way in the exercise of those functions. But the function of the church in its corporate capacity is an entirely different kind. It is a weapon against evil. Its Its weapons against evil are spiritual, not carnal, and by becoming a political lobby through the advocacy of political measures, whether good or bad, the church is turning from its proper mission, which is to bring to bear upon the human hearts the solemn and the solemn and yet sweet and gracious appeal of the gospel of Christ. Um, so that's kind of a, a statement of the spirituality of the church that, that Machen held. And in theory, the old schoolers held as well. It's, it's the church's mission to bring people to Christ. It's not, as the church, it's not to tell the state how to, to organize itself. Some have called the old schoolers out for inconsistency on this. And I think it's true. They kind of applied this insofar as it met their ends. And sometimes their ends were the perpetuation of slavery. Um, for example, during the war, the the uh, old school assembly in the South says it's the pe- peculiar mission of the Southern church to conserve the institution of slavery and make it a blessing to both master and slave, right? So suddenly that, um, that uh, spirituality of the church doctrine kind of goes out the window and they, they say, no, our, our mission is to help preserve slavery. But still, uh, most... Um, again, are in the middle and really want gradual emancipation. Uh, Charles Hodge in the north in Princeton says the old school Presbyterians have stood up against stood up as a wall against the flood of abolition which would have overwhelmed the church and riven asunder the state. But at the same time, they have been the truest friends of the slave and most effectual advocates of emancipation. Okay. Um, We're going to have to continue this a little bit next time. Unfortunately, I was hoping to get through all this. But... um, I'll talk for a few more minutes, um, kind of leading up to the war. In, in 1857, so the Civil War starts in 1861. In 1857, um, the New School Assembly, uh, which had split off from the Old School Assembly, after a lot of internal chaos, and there's a lot of reading you can do about this, um, but the New School Assembly uh, splits between the North and the South. Um, this is the same year as the, the Dred Scott decision, not directly related, but you might remember, uh, removed the constitutional rights of citizens from, from, from free blacks in America. That's eight, uh, seven, 1857. In 1845, just for a little bit more context, the Baptists had already divided, so that's how you get a Southern Baptist church, which we still have today. Uh, the Methodists have divided also in 1845. Um, and you don't have a Southern Methodist church today because you have a united Methodist church, because the, the Methodists came back together to, in union. The old schoolers, uh, north and south, although a lot of them are in the south, stick together until um, after the war uh, starts. Um, they had declared in 1845 that slaveholders would not be disciplined um, in the church. Um, and largely under kind of a spirituality of the church uh, logic, that, that it's not their right to say, whether or not the the government should allow people to hold slaves. However, uh, the the, um, General Assembly of the Old School in 1861 is in May of 1861. Uh, One month earlier, shots had been fired at Fort Sumter um, in Charleston, starting the the war. And there's a resolution that comes from an old school man named Gardner Spring. He had been a minister in New York City for many years. And he um, gets this resolution passed at the General Assembly, that all in the church are to do all in their power to promote and perpetuate the integrity of the United States and to strengthen, uphold, and encourage the federal government, which you can imagine isn't going to fly very well with Southern old schoolers. South Carolina has already seceded, and the war has already started. People are not going to want to um, vow to uphold the federal government. Um, um, Some protested this. A protest is kind of a formal disagreement that you can issue in a church court. Um, they said that the Bible does not enable any man to decide whether these United States are a nation or a voluntary confederacy of nations. The church has no voice in the decision on this question. So the church isn't to decide whether or not we have to support a federal government or a voluntary confederacy, which it's a good argument to be made for that. So in December 4th, 1861, about six months later, Uh, An old-school church in the South is established, um, believing it had been unconstitutionally removed from the broader old-school body through these Gardner Spring Resolutions. Uh, It holds its first General Assembly in Augusta, Georgia, with about, um, (laughs) some people would like this, I I have a typo, it says 840 monsters, but it should be ministers, but um, (laughs) some would agree with that, uh, and 72,000 members. Um, First, Presbyterian Church Church, was pastored, just an anecdote, by the father of a young boy, I think he was maybe eight years old, named Thomas Wilson, or anybody know his middle name? Woodrow Wilson, who then goes on to be the president of the United States, one of, I think, eight Presbyterian presidents. So I'm going to have to stop here, and we'll have to talk a little bit more about the war uh, next time. But what, what has happened here is from... Um, the 1830s until the early 1860s, we go from one mainline Presbyterian church. And again, we have in the background here also all the, the Scottish churches we talked about last week. But we go from one mainline church to now having four churches. In the north, we have an old school and a new school church. In the south, we have an old school and a, a, a small but existent uh, new school church. Um, okay, I'm out of time, so I'm going to stop there. Again, go get your kids if you need to. And if there are any questions, um, I'm happy to take them. If there are any opinions, you're happy to share them around your lunch table. Uh, Yes, Matt. (laughs) Yes, sir. Yeah, so... First Presbyterian Church here in Raleigh is a southern church. There's a book on the history of First Presbyterian Church in Raleigh. And it's an old school church as well. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the minister there uh, during the war because I think he's an interesting character. Uh, I'll talk about that next time.